Yes, indeed. You know what that music means. That music means it is time for Stay in the Loop with Lucy on a Sunday morning. Welcome to today's show, which is going to be one of our monthly rotary shows. If you haven't joined us before, this is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people, people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can then choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. This week's show, I have a co-presenter. I'm going to say welcome to Ian Stewart. Welcome, Ian. Thanks, Lucy. Now, you might remember, Ian, from um, just before Christmas, at the beginning of December, we had a show talking about some of the Rotary initiatives and Ian was in the studio with me then. And we're going to continue the partnership by having uh, monthly shows about what Rotary does and some of the people that engage with Rotary, some of the projects and some of the projects that they engage with. So what are we talking about today, Ian? Well, today, Lucy, we're talking about a man, an extraordinary man, called Steve Plain. Steve has just left Australia recently to attempt to climb the world's highest uh, summit in each of seven continents around the world. Um, He's going to do this in under four months. The whole project is known as Project 7 in 4. It's the story of Steve Plain. Wow. Now, we're one for seven at the moment. He has... He has climbed one of those mountains. Which ones has he climbed so far? Okay, so he set off going to Antarctica and he mm-hmm. climbed Mount Vincent, okay. which is the highest peak down there. Mount Vincent is done and he's waiting for his second one, which is... This one is in South, in, um, in South America. Yep. He's there already. Uh, he's in Argentina and he's about to climb Mount Aconcagua, which is 6,960 metres. Holy moly. Now, listen, guys, you may be thinking, look, what what is so exceptional about that? But you have to understand that three years ago, Steve broke his neck in the surf at Gottesloe Beach and was not sure if he would ever walk again. This is the story of one man's refusal to consider there was ever the possibility of not walking again. I introduce to you Steve Plain. What happened to you back in December 2014? Um, so it was Saturday morning and just gone for an early swim down at Cottesloe Beach in Western Australia. And uh, there's a pylon out off the beach there, which we'd sort of swim around and swim back in. And on the way coming back in, uh, just sort of paused, treaded water for a little bit and waited for a slightly larger swell to come through and then started to body surf into the beach. And, yeah, that was the last thing I remember. Got dumped in the wave and... Um, and lost consciousness when I hit the ground, hit the sand. And um, when I regained consciousness uh, in the water, and the first concern was just about trying to breathe. So initially didn't really feel any pain or anything. It was just more uh, numb and shock. And when I tried to actually move my arms to swim to take a breath, uh, that's when I realised I couldn't move my arms and was paralysed that time. So it was a, um, a pretty scary morning. You had a friend, Dave Field, in the water with you, didn't you? That's right. He was down, uh, we'd, down we'd, we'd gone down and gone for a swim together. And he actually saw what was happening and came and uh, initially just held my held my shoulders and stabilised my head between uh, his arms, between his forearms. 
um, he suspected it was some a spinal injury at that stage, and um, at the same time waved to two surf lifesavers who uh, for, very fortuitously had just come down to open up the club to get some boards for a competition they were doing, and they came uh, straight down and took over from there and uh, got me under the spinal board and got me up onto the beach and um, gave a necessary first aid until the ambulance could arrive. So actually, if Dave hadn't been there, if, if someone else had been around, then they might not have suspected spinal injury. They might not have had that way of thinking. Absolutely, yeah, I think... Um, just being so fortuitous that the train surf lifesavers were there. Uh, they actually, when they saw what was happening and their initial reaction was spinal, yeah. um, instead of bringing me up the beach, they actually took me slightly further out to get me out of where I was in a zone where the waves were breaking. Mm. So they took me slightly deeper out to get me out of the breaking waves and held me in the water where at least my body was partially um, balanced in the water. Yep. And then brought the spinal board into the water and got me on the board from there and... Um, kept me very rigid as they pulled me out of the beach, but certainly if anyone else, uh, the normal reaction would just be to try and, if you see someone in the water who's struggling to breathe, yeah, would yeah. just be to grab them and drag them out of the beach. So definitely something like, if someone had a, with good intentions tried to do that, uh, because I um, had unstable fractures to my neck, that certainly could have made the situation 10 times worse. I'm someone who comes from England and I've never experienced uh, lifesavers like we have in Australia. They are incredibly dedicated volunteers and incredibly well uh, trained to to respond to all sorts of challenges in the water. And, and this, is, this is part of what you want to give back, isn't it? We'll go into talking about what you're about to do, but, you know, just to actually say, you know, how you can even give back to these people, that's part of it. Absolutely. I think we sort of take for granted you know, Australian beaches. Uh, you know, during summer holidays at the moment, people are down on the beach all the time. You take for granted the beautiful beaches. But you're right, there's the surf lifesavers are there every day with um, providing all the, just patrolling the beaches and providing the support as needed. And the number of rescues they perform, I'm not sure of the actual stats, but it's very, very high. So um, they do an absolutely wonderful job. So trying to help uh, create awareness for that. I think people also don't realise, definitely in WA, when everyone goes to BC, the normal reaction is usually worrying about sharks. But yeah. um, the day I had my the day I had my accident, there was actually three people admitted to hospital that day with spinal injuries off WA beaches. Wow. So it's a risk which um, at the beach, which I think people don't really quite appreciate how significant it is. That's huge. I wouldn't have known that, and that that's extraordinary. Now you sustained multiple unstable fractures fractures C two, C three, and C seven, which. Just to clarify, it was your con- you, your spinal cord was contorted. You'd ruptured a disc. You dissected one of the arterial the arterial artery, and you torn ligaments. They they did, that was a broken neck. The fact that you were not wheelchair bound um, that's quite extraordinary in itself, isn't it? Yeah, and when you sort of read that whole list like that, it was um, quite a lot of complications. Uh, when doctors. Doctors who were reviewing my case, uh, they literally did say that 99% of people with that level of injury would be wheelchair-bound for life after that. So they were quite surprised uh, with how quickly I regained uh, mobility in my arms and legs. And that was definitely, uh, from early stages, that gave a very good prognosis at least. So um, could have been much, much worse. And yeah, they were saying a miracle that it wasn't actually um, permanent paralysis. Yeah. Now, you know, we could look at that two ways. One of it, you were you were very fit before the event, weren't you? Yes. I'd always I'd come from uh, 
a lot of endurance sports, mainly triathlon and Ironman triathlon. So um, just a lot of yeah, just general cardio this type work so had a good level of fitness before the accident but that wouldn't necessarily um be indicative of a swift recovery so there was something very extraordinary about the fact that you have been able to you know not be in a wheelchair and and perhaps you know as you're lying there as you say what were your thoughts what did you suddenly decide you wanted to to do um i guess right from Right from day one, and getting being told you've broken your neck, that was incredibly, incredibly scary. And I guess for the initial days in hospital, um, it was more just a level of uncertainty, which created a lot of extra anxiety as well. And it took uh, five days until the doctors had fully diagnosed my injuries and decided on the course of action to take. So for that whole time, I was still talking about operating, infusing all the vertebrae in my neck, and all sorts of different measures to try and stabilise the injuries I'd sustained. And so through all of that, just that uncertainty was very hard. But uh, thankfully, they due to the number, due to the actual complications, they elected not to operate and put me in the halo brace instead, which I had to wear for about four months. But from those, yes, even right when I was in hospital, I made equipment to myself that I wanted to wanted to get through this and come through fitter and stronger than I was before. So uh, that gave me a fair bit of drive throughout my recovery and rehab to try and get back and get get back to uh, level fitness where I was previously. Were you an avid climber before you decided to uh, climb seven mountains in four months? <laughs> Did you think about doing anything uh, like this before? <laughs> I was not never climbed before, and I'd actually never climbed before. So oh I'd done a lot of growing up in Sydney. Uh, done a lot of bushwalking just around the local national parks and in the Blue Mountains, and uh, some more longer treks in Tasmania and other places. So spent a lot of time in the outdoors and just loved loved hiking and things. And when I was actually in high school in 1998, did a trek to Everest Base Camp with scouts at the time. And I guess that just walking up to Everest Base Camp and being in the Himalayas uh, just really intrigued me. And so I'd always had an interest to wanting to do more alpine climbing. Um, but with work and other things uh, along the way, never never really pursued it. And I guess once I had this accident, uh, that was really the impetus to um, just get out there and set myself a challenge to try and climb some mountains. And it's just evolved from that. And so uh, you've you obviously have these physical challenges with your body that you have worked incredibly hard and we'll put links to to these on on the internet so people can see um, on the blog post so people can see quite what the work that you've done um, to to get yourself fit enough to do it but you're also it's not that it's not just down to you being physically able to do it is it you're you're climbing seven mountains and mother nature might have have different ideas because some of these are out of season can you share a little bit about the those sorts of challenges that you might be facing yeah so the actual goal i've set myself which i've called project 74 is to try and climb the seven summits which is the highest mountain on each of the seven continents and trying to do that in under four months so the current record for the time to complete the seven summits is 126 days so trying to uh, four months we'll trying to beat that time so i start down in antarctica with the first climb down of it's called Mount Vincent, which is about 4,800 metres in, in, in Antarctica. And from there, we'll travel to every continent, climb the highest mountain on each continent, 
and ultimately finish on Everest in May. So the biggest challenge is probably to compress all the climbs in that schedule. A lot of the climbs, will, or some of the climbs, particularly Northern Hemisphere climbs, will be doing out of season, so they're having a climb in wintertime. Mm. So the most challenging people will automatically just immediately think of Everest, thinking uh, the tallest mountain in the world being the hardest. Uh, but I suspect the hardest for us would probably be when we get up into Alaska in March mm. and try and climb Tenali up there in the, um, in the tail end of winter. So the weather... Yes, fitness is one aspect of it, but the weather and the unpredictability of that will play a large part in the ultimate success of how we go. And who's going with you on this challenge? Or are you, I mean, I presume you're going with people or are you picking up different people as you go? Uh, Doing it with people, um, just for a safety um, aspect of it. Mm. To get down into Antarctica, it's very difficult just logistically. So for the climb down there, I've just joined a commercial expedition. Mm-hmm. And that worked quite well because it's the first one, so I've got a fixed start date. So I can right. just sign up and go along. Yep. Then after that, the rest of them I'm doing independently with a friend from the UK. Mm-hmm. So it's a friend who I've climbed with on some of the previous uh, practice climbs I've done in the past. Mm-hmm. And he's going to join me on the second one and we'll do the remaining six together. Uh, his profession is actually, he's a mountain guide as a profession. So he brings a lot of expertise along with him as well, which is fantastic. Yes, because I can imagine it's not just physical, there's also a psychological aspect to it, isn't there? You know, the, the, to to keep yourself going, having someone who who's done this before will be a great support for you. Absolutely, and the, with big days on the mountain, ultimately there's only so much you can train for and only so much physically you can prepare for. Mm. So it is, a lot of it does come just down to the mental um, mental capacity is keep on going in um, what will undoubtedly be some very long, tough days that we'll be facing. I presume your level of self-care would have been higher than for someone who hasn't had such an injury. Are there any special provisions that you're going to have to uh, put in place to look after yourself uh, while you're out there because of the injuries you sustained? Not really, no. I've made not full recovery, but fairly... Uh, full recovery to the point that um, my neck and everything is fully functional. So there's no additional measures on there taken the climb. Um, in terms of my current ability, I don't. I sustained along with all the injuries a lot of nerve damage in my in my neck. So I don't have full feeling down the side of my neck mm. and get uh, quite frequent pain um, in my neck as well. But uh, that's just all a matter of just managing as I go. So there's no actual special provisions or measures we'll actually take to um, out of the ordinary from what we normally doing, do, be doing regardless. Yeah, I would, I would guess um, uh, that you're going to have to just make sure that your skin, you're, you're fully covered because if you can't feel the cold perhaps on your neck, the, there's the, that danger of frostbite, isn't there? Unfortunately, in those sort of around the head and things um, where you generally have fairly high blood flow, uh, frostbite's fairly rare in those areas. So from the climbs I've done previously uh, over the last couple of years since the accident in preparing for this, um, in testing how my body will uh, cope and perform in the cold and the altitudes we'll be going to, haven't had any real problems with that, thankfully. So that's um, hopefully given good signs for, for what's ahead. What do your family think about you doing it? <laughs> um I think Mum would prefer that I'm not doing it. <laughs> they're all very, very, they're all very supportive, but uh, parents naturally always worry. Yeah. Um, but while they're worrying, they understand um, my desires to want to do this and try and achieve it. So uh, they're fully behind me and supportive of it at the same time. 
It really sounds like it's given you a great purpose to, you know, as you say, it's, but this has been three years in the making. What what will you do afterwards when there isn't this goal here? That's a um, quite a common question a lot of people ask. And to be honest, I really haven't thought that far ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever since my accident and setting myself the goal of doing the seven summits, it's really just been step by step. And I think initially the goal was so huge to even try and, you know, when I was late in hospital, which was initially when I said I want to do the seven summits, um, to actually try and fathom the challenge at that point in time was just uh, too large. So it's really just been looking at what's the next step. So initially it was just getting out of hospital, then it was managing the time in the halo brace and was trying to go through recovery, um, then just doing the practice columns one by one. So as I continue, I'll just take that same approach and um, really at the moment just looking at the first climb, it's Mount Vincent, we'll get that one done, then we'll focus on the second one and just keep taking it step by step and what happens at the end, I'm not too sure at this stage. You know what's lovely is all the time that you're going to have, there's the solitude and the, the you know, when you're around nature i find that it it opens space to really contemplate what your purpose here is as well uh, you know around such beauty i i heard it in your voice in one of the um youtube posts that you put up about everest and you could just hear the the, the reverence i guess of of what you're looking at um I wonder if, you know, that's what you'll find when as you're going, you'll you'll kind of know what your next step is because you'll you'll just as you say, everything you've done so far, you've taken step by step by step. And perhaps that's what this will be. The next steps will come as you complete the steps that are in front of you. Yeah, I definitely hope so. And um I say you never know what 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 we'll encounter and what doors can open on the way and where it may lead. So I'm really just sort of um, going into it, trying to embrace it as much as I can and take as much out of this journey and then see where it will uh, where it can lead us after that. Absolutely. Now, you you've said just you've said in one of your um, I think it's on your blog site or your website that you don't regret what happened to you. Can you just explain that to us a little bit? Yeah. I think you're probably referring to a blog post I put up on 13th of December um, last year, which was marked three years since I broke my neck. That's right. And yeah, said I don't, I don't regret for one minute actually having done that, uh, which a lot of people find quite strange. But I think for myself, it's given, given me a new drive and new, um, new drive, new desire for what I want to achieve in life. And leading up to that accident, I put a lot of time into. People always tell you is normal or the safe things you should be doing in life. So, good education, doing your studies, getting a good job, focusing on work, all that aspect of it. And I guess I put aside a lot of my own personal goals I wanted to do along the way. Mm. And so, having broken my neck has definitely given me a new perspective. And um, you, know, you never know what's around the corner. So now, just trying to get out there and make the most of most of what I can while I can. Um, yeah, through all this. I'm trying to fundraise for both Spinal Cure, who are doing some amazing work in the Spinal Cord um, Research Cure, and uh, Surf for Life Saving Australia. So all the money that I'm raising through my website uh, is going 50-50 to both those organisations. So uh, we definitely appreciate the support of everyone out there. With Spinal Cure Australia, it sounds to me like part of what healed you was them giving you the space to let your body heal itself. 
But that in itself takes a lot of skill and research, doesn't it? Because there are others who I know there are some bionics that they're trying to um, to design so that it gets the nerve cells connecting and talking to each other better. Um, have, is that part of the research they're doing? Yeah, so Spinal Cure Australia are doing, have launched what they've called Project H, which is a five-year program, uh, research program in collaboration with a professor from, um, from the United States, and they're conducting that at UTS in Sydney. And they'll be able to elaborate more on the research they're doing, but it's electrostimulation of the spinal cord to bypass where a injury has occurred to try and stimulate spinal cord below and also looking at stem cell transplant as well as part of the research they're doing already having some positive results which is very exciting um, I guess for myself I didn't actually with my injury um, the work that Monica were doing didn't have any impact on me directly uh, but what when I had my accident and initially lying in hospital and the doctors told me the injuries I had I guess my first response was, well, how do we fix it? Mm. Uh, for everything else I've worked in the past, whether it be wrists or any, any other bones, um, you go in there, you can fix it pretty easy and it's not a problem. And the thing that struck me with spinal cord injuries is you know, at the moment we can't fix it. So the body, the injury will either heal by itself and people regain mobility or they're left permanently paralysed and there's no, there's no other options. So the work with spinal cord, the spinal cure doing, will hopefully give... Um, give a much better outlook for people who currently are facing permanent paralysis. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. My co-presenter in the studio today is Rotarian Ian Stewart. Hello, Ian. Hello. Now, we're talking about Steve Plain's personal challenge to climb seven summits in four months and break the world record. We obviously heard his interview. That was just before he left three days before he left. How's he going so far, Ian? Okay, so he's left Antarctica, where he did Mount Vincent. He's now in South America and about to climb Mount Aconcagua, which is in Argentina, 6,960 metres. Wow. Oh, I know, I know. Um, it, it's looking good so far. Mm-hmm. He's, he's part, part, part way up the mountain. Great. Um, he's made a number of, of uh, intermediate camps along the way. And I think we'll hear a little bit more about that later. He then goes to uh, Tanzania in Africa, to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, which is uh, 4,900 metres. He then goes across to the highest peak in Australasia, which I didn't actually know this, but it's in Papua New Guinea, and it's called Mount Carstens Pyramid, and that's at 4,884 metres. He then makes his way back uh, over to Russia, where he climbs Mount Elbrus, which is um, in the Caucasus Mountains in the southwest of Russia at 5,642 metres and then goes across to North America to climb the highest peak over there, which is up in Alaska. It's called Denali uh, at 6,190 metres. And as we heard on the interview, he'll conclude, uh, all being well, with Mount Everest, um, which, of course, is the highest mountain in Asia and in the world, at 8,848 metres. But that's not all. Those may be the seven highest peaks. But along the way, he's going to pop back down to Australia and actually take part in early March in a climb uh, up Mount Kosciuszko. <laughs> As if he wasn't doing enough, right? <laughs> What's a, he doing that one for? Well, it's, um, it's a wheelchair challenge. Ah. And the Rotary Club 
is putting together this opportunity for children in wheelchairs to have the opportunity to actually go up Mount Kosciuszko. Ah. Um, they're, they're looking for some volunteers to yes. help push the children okay. um, along the walk up to Kosciuszko and then there's other ceremony and hospitality being provided along along the way but steve will be all being well steve will be part of that and will be of course a great inspiration yes. to the to the children yes. in the wheelchairs to the carers and volunteers yes. who are going to help them along the way so that's the the seven summits plus an extra one thro- thrown in for good measure so we're wishing him well we are that's extraordinary now in the studio today we've also got steve plain's sister tanya welcome tanya Hi, Lucy and Ian. How are you today? <laughs> well, we're very well, and and it was it's been very humbling listening to uh, the interview again with Steve and just hearing, you know, what happened and how um, how he turned what could have been an absolute tragedy into a, quite a challenge for himself. Uh, what what was it like growing up with him? Was he always did he always turn things around, like things that might have been seen as a negative into a positive? Yeah, Steve's always had that little bit of an adventurous streak, a little bit mischievous through his childhood. Um, never uh, a moment where he would be at a pause for something to do. Um, that and growing up with a larger family too, there's always a lot of action. Because you have four other brothers, don't you? There I do, are five yes. of you in total. Uh, five brothers, six five, of us in total. Six of us, oh, that's <laughs> right, wow. So yes, they're all younger. Stephen's the oldest of the five, so he's certainly led by example. Mm-hmm. Oh dear, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really feeling for your mother here. If he if he led by example, are all the others equally adventurous? They all have their own little things that they are quite into, um, and many of them too. So between adventure racing and um, sailing races, um, there's lots of different things that they're all involved in. Wow. Now, how was it for you when you um, first got that phone call? Because he was living in Western Australia, wasn't he? It's quite a long way away. Were you you over here? Where were you? I was over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of us over here. We have one brother that does live over in Western Australia as well in Perth. So he was there pretty much immediately when it happened, which was a great comfort to our family. Yes. Um, My parents both flew over within a couple of days and were there for nearly a month with him. And then I flew over about a month later and then took care of him for the next six, seven months. Wow. Amazing of you. Yes. Well, I was in a bit of a situation where I had the time and the opportunity to just go over and take care of him and help the recovery because it's not something you can go through alone. No. And it sounds, I mean, I, I haven't been in that situation, but when I look at the network of people around someone who has experienced that level of trauma, a lot of it is psychological, isn't it? I mean, we'll we'll talk with Spinal Cure Australia a bit later, and I'm sure they'll tell us how much of a big part it plays. But to me, it seems that approach would be would be a huge amount. It is the psychology of um, going from being particularly a very active body and then having that complete bed rest almost is an, such an extreme shift that the lying there and just thinking through what you can't do I think has a huge impact and as you heard from Steve even while lying in hospital he was already thinking about okay this isn't going to be what I want I will be moving forward with my life Um, and when I was over there with him even just a few weeks later we were doing walks around in his massive halo brace Um, so certainly no not comfortable at all Hmm. in the middle of summer in this 
big woolen vest and pins stuck into your head. But he was already determined to get moving, get active and would be off on walks that most people in that situation would not have even been considering. The um, tenacity is is what comes across to me, you know, that ability not to take no for an answer. But also perhaps there was a calling from inside saying you're going you're going to actually be able to walk and you need to get get to that process quicker. Um, interesting though that I always associate mountains with an enormous level of stillness and what they reflect back to us is stillness too. I mean, if, if ever you've been up a mountain, you just feel at ease and at peace. And, and he and I spoke about that, that there is a... Um, and yet he couldn't really lie still very much in his own body. So there's, I, I find that quite an interesting dichotomy. Yes, he's even on his quiet days, yeah. he's always off doing something. Um, recently, down in Antarctica and Vincent, he had a, a rest day, which most people that were there on the, the climb with him w- would have been just sitting around the camp and having a bit of a rest. Yeah. He and a couple of them decided to go and hike up another mountain. So his ability to sit still for too long, um, maybe that will improve with time, having doing the seven um, summits and certainly if the weather comes in, you'd need to just obey yeah. that, um, respect the weather and go with whatever. I, I think the other mountain he climbed was Mount Shin in yes, Antarctica, which is I think the second or third highest in Antarctica. So on his day off, to do that is extraordinary. <laughs> it is. Um, he was a bit disappointed he didn't quite reach the top, but again, respecting the weather, the um, the winds came in, it just wasn't at that safe level to climb to the top. But in doing that, he was already up well and truly above what many people would ever consider. I think if it was just about 100 metres short yes. uh, oh, you could, of the summit. Yeah. If you look at um, some of the images and the video footage, you'd literally just in a couple of steps you would have been there. Mm. But still, in that climate zone you don't want to be risking that extra little bit and it is life and death you know we're, we're not people think oh but you know you may as well just and clearly some people do i love the fact that he actually is respecting the mountain and nature and his own body and saying it may be just a couple of steps it's not worth it exactly and he's got the bigger picture in mind too he does he does want to su- summit all seven so in just doing a little side mountain if that's going to cause any um danger to himself and then potentially not completing this project he is being a little bit sensible Mm. now the people who were on the beach at the time um dave for example have have you all stayed in touch steve is in touch still with the surf lifesavers that were there um another person that was there (coughs) was a colleague of his as well so they do keep in regular contact he's had a few interviews and certainly with the surf lifesaving efforts that he's um, fundraising for as well has had a bit more contact than maybe he would have if mm. he hadn't have been undertaking this project. Mm. And what do you, what, what you're doing, you seem to be doing his social media or keeping an eye on things here for him, keeping which is valuable Yes, job. keeping tabs on things and updates happening because obviously as he's travelling, he has very limited contact a lot of the time. So he is travelling with um, a live GPS tracker and he can pump out little messages through that, which... Um, then pinpoints to a map every 30 minutes on his climb as well. 
So that's valuable information, sort of it keeping is. tabs on him and helping keep everyone updated. Yeah. But then for bigger updates, um, the video footage, photographs and things, I'll get sent through and then we can get that out to people so they can stay informed. It is a full-time job. And as you say, you're raising money here. So it's really important that people get to see, you know, what what's where and where he is. Yeah, no, it's a, a major thing of any fundraising is having that interaction with the community and Steve really wants to have everyone involved in supporting him plus supporting these charities that he's very fond of now. And we are indeed going to talk to two of those in this show today. We've got um, Spinal Cure Australia and Duncan Wallace and we um, are going to be talking to Surf Lifesaving now it's the general manager of Surf Lifesaving, the training um, and education side, which, you know, you can imagine it was the fact that they were educated about what to do with a suspected spinal injury that, that saved Steve. Yes, and one of the Surf Lifesavers there, that was actually her first time she'd been involved in an accident. She'd only just gone through the training. Wow. Very cool. So, yes, Chris Peck will be coming up shortly. Now, um, you know, let's be real. The statistics so far this year are 13,077 first aids and 3,169 rescues. Those statistics are from Surf Lifesaving Australia's website. That's a bit shocking, bearing in mind we're not at the end of January yet. I'm kind of wondering whether those are all summer or that is, you know, just for this year. Tanya, you grew up on the North Shore. Yes. We're a local community radio station. Can you tell us a little bit about that, where you grew up and what it was like? One girl with five brothers in a very busy house. Sure. So we grew up just down in Taramara. Um, one girl, five brothers. That's hard to really comment on because I have no other frame of reference. Yeah. But certainly it was always a very active time um, out and about. We went through St Leo's College, just around the corner from here, and involved in the scouting movements in the local community. Um, rugby player, rug- wasn't he? Sorry? Wasn't he a rugby player too? He did play a bit of rugby. Yeah. Um, and then there was a lot more with um, sailing and adventures and other things as well. But I think a lot of it was by the time we... Because we did move to Sydney a little bit later. So a lot of what Steve did when he was here compared to what some of my other brothers then went into, got involved in, uh, was a lot more the scouting movements. And, and didn't the scouts actually go to Nepal as part they of their did. program? Yeah, so it's about 20 years ago now. Um, so they climbed, did the base camp trek, which uh, part of what Stephen is doing is actually organising a fundraising trek to base camp as well for people more like myself who don't have aspirations to summit and mountaineer, but just to go on a nice... A fairly long trek, but um, still quite an easy fashion. So that influence of Steve's back when he was in Scouts has had a huge impact on him and wants to have other people experience that with him as well. So he was a Venturer Scout, that's right, when he went up to base camp. Venturer, yes. yeah. yeah. So yeah. a little bit older than just the, the Scout. General. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. What the Scouts do and getting people out and involved in different activities, I think, is absolutely fantastic for um, child development yep and service and understanding service well. that life is more about than more than just the pleasures we can get out of it ourselves yeah, i definitely. quite like that idea we've had a very good uh, picture of who steve is where he's from um the amazing journey that he's on right now and of course we all wish him every success to complete 
the Project 7 in 4. might be worth just mentioning, Lucy, that there is a very good website, www.project7in4.com, which has got the entire story about this um, exercise with, um, as Tanya mentioned, some very good um, uh, to-camera um, pieces by Steve, uh, other media interviews that he's done, and um, the live tracker and the day to day commentary of what he's actually up to. That's right. Makes really, really good reading, as well as the opportunity to make a donation if you want to do that as well. So. That's right. So I have put on the website, uh, well, I, the, with the website that will go with this blog, um, I've put a, con- a link to that white live tracker and also to the website in general, oh, uh, as well as Spinal Cure and Life Saving, so that we can do that. But you know what? I need to have, have the big donate here button on there, don't I? So you are listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. My co-presenter today is Ian Stewart from Taramara Rotary. Welcome, Ian. Thanks, Lucy. Now, beach, sand and surf are synonymous with Australian summer. Every time you make a conscious decision to swim between the red and yellow flags or take your family and friends to a patrol beach, you're using the service provided by volunteer Surf Lifesavers. Now, Surf Lifesaving Western Australia is their state's peak peak coastal safety and rescue organisation. Saving lives is the care of what they do through patrolling beaches, the delivery of essential life-saving services, running training and education programs in the community, teaching people life-saving first aid and giving lifesavers the chance to hone their skills on the sand and in the water. So with us today is Chris Peck. Chris is the General Manager of Life-Saving and Training at Surf Life-Saving Western Australia. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Anne. Morning, Lucy. It's a beautiful day in Perth today, and I'm sure there's plenty of people that are just probably getting ready or have already hit the water uh, to enjoy the uh, the morning that we've got in Perth. Fantastic. And look, I'm sorry to have to get you up so early, because I think you're three hours behind us, aren't you? Yeah, it is three hours, Anne, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, you want to enjoy the summer, you've got to take it early. Good on you, good on you. Now, listen, Chris, I know that you weren't there in person at Cottesloe's Beach when Steve had his accident, but uh, two of your colleagues were... Was this just by chance, or were they actually already scheduled to be on duty that day? No, it was by chance, as a matter of fact. And, and you know, chance in a sense that look, the lifesavers, they, they are up and about early in the morning in terms of preparation. Um, the two members that were around at Cottesloe Beach that morning were actually doing preparation for one of our surf sports carnivals. So they were competing uh, that morning. They were down at Cottesloe Beach collecting their gear. And uh, fortunately for Steve... Um, you know, out the corner of their eye, they, they noticed that there was uh, something not quite right with what was going on in the water. So really by chance, and, and we, we do have services that start early in the morning, but uh, at Cottesloe Beach at that time, it was, it was a lucky time for Steve. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, look, uh, how often do you come across or do your uh, staff come across people struggling in the way that Steve was that morning? Look, Steve's... Uh that was a pretty catastrophic side um, of you know of an outcome that happened to Steve. Um, unfortunately, um, Ian and Lucy, what we do see all too often is our members treating people for spinal injuries, and in the most case, fortunately, uh, they are just treatments, and people get taken off to hospital and they're assessed. And um, you know the, the symptoms that we see, uh, we think that we need to take the extra precaution, and, and you know those people normally have a you know a really positive outcome in terms of they don't have any lasting rehabilitation. Uh, Steve's thing um, was, as I said, was really at the end of the uh, the spectrum and the extreme end of it in terms 
of, you know, his injury. Um, but it can only be a millimetre uh, you know, either way, Ian and Lucy, mm-hmm. in terms of what happens in, in those situations. And, and whilst uh, Steve's probably a millimetre uh, the wrong way in terms of the mechanism of the injury, um, fortunately for him, it wasn't, it wasn't a millimetre too far because he was able to, uh, a long process, however, he's obviously able to rehabilitate. So just take us back for one moment to the water. Um, uh, the surf lifesavers have gone in. Um, uh, they recognised that his condition was a spinal condition. Um, and I think Steve mentioned in, in his uh, interview something about a spinal board. Uh, what, what's that exactly? Yeah, so we spend a fair bit of time uh, with our lifesavers, particularly the volunteers, in terms of uh, teaching them about spinal injury and spinal immobilisation, that uh, what you do in the water and, and what you do in the first instance can make such a substantial difference to someone having a positive outcome. And whilst I said, you know, lots of people who uh, go off the hospital uh, come out okay, we often get feedback from the, uh, the spinal care unit that it's the job that our lifesavers uh, did that made the difference. So in this case, there are two lifesavers from Cottesloe. Um, when they were applying their, their skills or they're applying their rescue, um, they decided to take Steve further out um, to sea to begin with because they wanted to avoid the waves and the swell that were coming in. And that's the reason that Steve ended up in his position because he mistimed, you know, catching them and body surfing a wave. So taking him further out gave him some further time to assess the situation uh, that he was in and, and the, um, you know, the, the strategy that they needed to employ to, to make sure that they were treating him right. And then they used the spinal board, which is a piece of equipment that uh, most of our surf clubs have, which means that um, you're able to immobilise the person into a nice position before you move them out of the water. And it's that immobilisation that stops any further movement and, and hopefully any further injury. So this idea of taking him out to, to deeper water on, on the spinal board, this is a technique that you teach? Well, it's, it's all about uh, problem solving, uh, mm-hmm. and, and whilst you have to apply your, you know, the skills that you've learned, you have to apply them to the situation that you're, you've got in front of you. So in order for them to get the best assessment done and to make sure that they could apply the spinal board effectively, meant that in their problem solving, they made the decision to go further out to a sea to avoid the waves. And in that time, they could make the, you know, the, the proper assessment, apply the, you know, the appropriate equipment, um, and also you know, understand what further... Um, assistance or, or what further equipment they needed to, to support Steve and to get him back in the beach the best possible way. And, and fortunately, um, you know, it's not something they probably would have treated, you know, many times or applied those skills many times, but they executed their training um, really excellent and we couldn't be more proud of them. I th- I, they certainly did. And, and I think probably that uh, strategy and the techniques that, you, that were used that day are largely unknown to the wider general public. And I uh, congratulate you and the surf life-saving movement in WA for what you, what you succeeded in doing there. Uh, yeah, very, sorry, I was just going to say, we're obviously very proud of our members, Ian, and uh, one of the things that we, we like to ensure, um, that when they go out and they're doing their job, it's not only what they do on patrol, but it's what they can do in the wider community with those skills that's so important, mm-hmm. and we call them skills for life, and, and that's, what, what, that's what makes us proud as an organisation. It's just not what happens in the beach for us, uh, lots of our members are doing this sort of work out in the community, whether it's first aid or, or spinal skills. And I think you're right. Uh, a lot of people will know about first aid, but not potentially, um, you know, how to treat a, a, a spinal patient. And you, you see often many of them in car crashes. It's not just at the beach um, where you come across these situations. Uh, and our members have the confidence to attend and, and to participate in them. Chris, what I picked up as well was they stopped for a moment to assess. They didn't just jump in seeing someone who who clearly 
was struggling to breathe as well because um, he Steve said that he didn't know how to breathe, which way was up, how to move himself in order to get that next breath. So there is a time-sensitive moment there, but your your volunteers, and I think it was really important to stress that they're volunteers, the training they were given gave them space to, to consider from a very steady place what was needed before they responded. Yeah, I think we often see that with ambulance officers, uh, you know, the, the ongoing training that they do, and it, and it gives them the confidence. It's like anything, um, I think, that if you're involved in a sport, um, you know, whether it's rugby, um, and, and you practice those skills time and time again, they come naturally to you. And, mm. you know, the ambulance officers, you never see them run into a scene, and, and we hope, you know, that our members do the same, that they remain calm and that they assess the situation when they're moving in so that they make the right decisions early. Because if you say, Lucy, it's... Uh, it's time critical, and you can imagine how scary that would have been for, for Steve, you know, not knowing which way was up and down and not being able to move. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm imagining the relief that would have washed through him um, when when they, the members came to his aid. So, you know, not only is the initial training that we provide important, but it's the ongoing training, it's the skills maintenance that, you know, really gives the confidence to ensure that when you're executing your duties that you do it like it's second nature and I think that's one of the really important things training is just as important as the job that we do so um, the training is both of the lifesavers themselves and educating the wider community about the risks on the beach and uh, ways to mitigate those and to uh, if they need to do a rescue themselves have some sense of what needs to be done Um, Steve Plain is um, not only doing this from a wonderful Project 7 in 4, but is raising awareness and raising funds uh, to, to support uh, your work um, and that of Spinal Cure Australia. Um, any idea, uh, Chris, on how you might spend some of the money that we hope is going to come in your direction? Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, it's fantastic that Steve is, um, you know, putting this awareness around it and, it's, you know, he's taking on this challenge and, and really showing people that... Uh, you know, you can not only overcome adversity, uh, but you can you can throw yourself back in there. And you know what what a what a magnificent project Steve's you know taking on. So, you know, the project seven in four. Hopefully, the, the money that are raised um, really importantly go to that spinal awareness, um, but also to you know the surf lifesavers where we will in continue to invest uh, in opportunities for our members to um, either be you know trained for the first time or to have new training because the the first contact you have. Uh, when you come into surf lifesaving is, is really about your initial training and, and it's those important basic skills such as spinal management and I've, and I've just called them basic because they are to lifesavers they might not be to the general community but the sort of funds that Steve can raise and, and to other groups we put them into what is called a uh, beach safe uh, fund and that's where our, our clubs and our members can access funds to, um, to purchase equipment um, or to access training so that's where we'll be targeting any of those funds that uh, so Steve can generate from doing this project with the training, uh, Chris, there are new techniques and new strategies being developed um, and new methods of rescue being introduced. Um, over in WA, are you ahead of the curve here? Are you, or is it a, are any developments um, uh, international and shared around the world? They often tend to be shared in, so, um, you know, 
medically, um, when things change and when the science uh, tells us that we need to change, such as when you're doing, um, you know, uh, resuscitation was, was probably the last biggest change that came to training. But what is constantly changing is probably the opportunity for, um, for equipment. So where you're using uh, things like whether it's jet skis or, or we're using drones now, and I, and I think we're ahead of the curve in that space. Uh, but training tends to be something that is um, internationally shared uh, to ensure that there's a consistent application of those um, you know skills across the world. Fantastic. Well, um, of course, surf like the, the, the sand and the surf are um, uh, familiar to nearly everybody in Australia and we do congratulate you on the, on the work that you're doing. Um, and of course, right now, late January, uh, peak beach season for us all around Australia. Uh, what advice have you got for someone who has been dumped or feels that they've lost a bit of control out there in the water? Yeah, it's really important, isn't it, that uh, you don't overestimate your ability um, when you're going into particularly a surf environment. So it's really important to learn how to body surf. Now, how do you do that? Well, the best way is to you know, join a surf club or to make sure that your children are involved in a surf club so they get those essential skills if you want to enjoy what is that quintessential Australian lifestyle. Um, you know, talk to the lifesavers when you go down to the beach. I swim between the red and yellow flags. Have that conversation with the lifesavers. They're really ready and willing uh, to have that discussion about what the conditions are like and how they might be suited to you. And so that's probably the best advice is talk to the lifesavers and where possible, particularly get your children involved to learn those basic skills. In, in the nippers or the minnows or whatever for, yeah, for the young called, kids. Yeah, they're, they're called nippers across the, the country. It's, uh, it's a unique... Um, uh, thing to Australia, and oh, really? you know, thousands of kids every Sunday morning are down at the beaches <laughs> uh, learning those particular skills, and it's, it's a fantastic thing to see. All of my kids went through it. It was very good. They didn't quite, they did, they didn't quite make it past, I think, nine years old, but they did it all up until then. Lucy, they would have learned the basic skills. Yeah. And that's, that's really important yeah. that they've got those basic life skills um, that they'll remember, uh, I think, for the rest of their lives and hopefully get their children involved. Yes, I agree. And it, and it, it is those basic skills of being, um, being out in a rip, knowing what that feels like, how to just go with it and go sideways, which arm to put up, uh, really the care of reading the water so that you actually are aware of where there might be shallower water, which obviously was a, a situation with this one where there's a um a something under the water that you can't necessarily see but the water's breaking differently those are all things that they learnt with you that they they taught me yeah and, I, and understanding that uh you know swimming at a patrolled location is really the best opportunity to stay safe and and whilst um you know people in the community might think that we go on and on about that it's it's there is a good reason why we put those red and yellow flags up and we put them in the location that we do because it gives the best opportunity um, you know, for people when they come down to the beach to stay safe Absolutely. and to receive the best information. And, and that's really the, you know, the strongest message we could give us to swim at those patrolled locations where the lifesavers are. Chris, thank you very much. Now, you've been listening to Chris Peck, who's the General Manager of Lifesaving and Training at Surf Lifesaving Western Australia. Chris, we do thank you. Thank you for getting up so, so early and thank you for sharing your advice uh, and your intelligence with us all here on Radio Triple Triple 100.1 FM. Triple 100.1 FM, as Lucy keeps <laughs> reminding me. Look, it's fantastic. We wish you well. We hope we're going to raise a lot of money for you. Just reminding our listeners, project7in4.com is the uh, website for the whole um, event, and there is a donate button there. And, uh, Chris, congratulations again, and we look forward to, I'm sure you do too, to hearing the rest of the Stephen Plain stories that unfolds. Thanks so much. Yeah.
thanks, Ian and Lucy, and uh, just encourage everyone to donate to that website to uh, support Steve Plain. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy, with Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello. And with Tanya. Hello. Hello. What an interesting conversation with Chris. And Mm. actually, I think sometimes we forget just when we live in a country with water everywhere and actually a lot of people have pools or next door neighbours with pools, the importance of teaching children pool safety and life-saving skills i was saying uh to you both when we were off air i would automatically have pulled someone out of the water if i saw them struggling i would not have thought that they might have a spinal injury now we need to talk about that as much as possible because i would have caused far more damage to chris if i had been his number one person on the beach yeah, that's your instinct, isn't it? To, it is. To drag them to the shore as fast as possible. Yeah. Uh, so, as you just heard, luckily, those two volunteer lifesavers knew what to do. Mm. And they had the right equipment to mm. take him out, hold him there until the water was calmer, and then bring him ashore. Mm. When they've got a board. Uh, the spinal you know, board. Something as, yeah. something as simple as saying, get out of... I mean, in, in normal... Um, in normal first aid, you assess for danger. Whenever you get to a scene, you assess for danger. I get that. But in the water, you forget that part of the danger is the injury they've got and causing more injury. Mm. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I've just... It's like a duh moment for me where I go, well, of course, Lucy. But it didn't, it didn't occur to me. No, well, those initial reactions of get someone out of the water, get them to safety... Um, you're thinking of them drowning first, not necessarily what other issues might be they might have sustained. Not surviving. Not surviving, yeah. I mean, isn't that it? <laughs> we, we think immediately if someone's in danger, it's a life or death situation, we get them out of it. But it's the same with a car crash. You've actually, if the car is not going to blow up, leave them in the car. If they're not in any danger, they're at least... They're um, stable. They're stable and then wait for someone who knows what they're doing to come along. Exactly. Be with the person, but let them know. But you've got to assess for all that danger in the surf. Get them out where they're not being bashed by the rolling waves. But really, the way the easiest way to do it is is only go in on a patrol beach. Mm-hmm. Lucy, just thinking um, about the whole project seven in four. Yeah, it's a three to four month project. Yeah. Okay, so Steve's done four month the- tops. Hey. Yeah. The world record is 126 days. Yes. And Steve is aiming to beat that. Yes, therefore, it's a full stop. Yep. Uh, but um, there'd be an opportunity, I think, yeah. if you were willing to revisit this story oh, um, yeah. in one of your programs over the next few months yes. just to see how he's tracking. Yeah. And Tanya, we might be able to do a live cross somewhere in the world if the time zone is favourable. If the time zone and the timing works, that definitely we can try and coordinate that. Wouldn't that be great? Yes. Could be a bit of a laugh. I mean, we didn't work quite so well with Sydney, but we might be able to do somewhere do else. International. In, in Russia. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> Skype will be ready. Yeah. You didn't want Skype. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's it. It, it would be great to follow this story mm. because... No, the more education we get, the more we think about what we're going to do and, and make and better decisions. And who knows? You know, he he's raising funds. We, mm. need, to, we need to support that. And he, he has said he has said that he would. 
call in where he could. Right. But I think Tanya might be our person to actually make that happen. Well, you asked earlier on, you know, what is Steve's plans once it's all over? Yeah. And I think he's hedging his bets a bit at the moment. He he won't declare because he probably doesn't know. He's taking it one step at a time. But mm. um, a, a suggestion I might put to him, assuming everything is successful, it's a very inspirational story that could be shared much more widely and there could be opportunities out there in the public domain through schools or other agencies to tell the Project 7 in 4 story, mm. um, how it came about and the courage, the vision and assuming everything successful, the perseverance required to deliver a successful outcome I think is... Uh, now, I don't know your brother either. I reckon he would like that part of the time, but he actually wants to be on the ground doing it because all the talking would be like blah, blah. And then he would say, but as a guide, to actually doing that talk and then saying, I'm running an expedition, mm. we're going here, that I, that, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like he, he's clearly a physical person. He needs to be doing yes. things. And yeah, get people out there and experience these things as well because it's a massive world out there and there's yes. so many different adventures to go on and everyone can do things at whatever level they are comfortable with. The challenge with anybody who's experienced things, as, you, as you've said, it is a very inspirational story, but the challenge is to move beyond it, isn't it? I know so many people who, who have had terrible um, illnesses and they've come through them and they talk about them as inspiration but part of them still lives in that illness and when I spoke to him he actually doesn't he doesn't sit in the past he's very much in the present and moving forward and I and uh, you know as a you know when we talk with counseling you actually you need to be able to tell your story without post-traumatic stress keep coming up and it's the sort of story even when I was talking to him I was listing his injuries and he went a little bit quiet before he said when you list them all like that it does seem a bit crazy there's a there's an element that I re-triggered the the magnitude of what had happened so there's that bit of retelling isn't there when you become an inspirational speaker of not making it the defining moment of your entire life yeah, no, it is important to be able to take those experiences and reframe them to help you move forward. Mm. Um, if you're sitting and dwelling on what could have been or what has become, um, it can spiral, keep spiralling downhill. So you do need to take that approach of looking forward, looking for the positives in what might be, finding an objective, which like Steve has done, which is going to just push you forward. Did you do a lot of that when you were sitting with him for that that time in Perth? I mean, I can imagine... I was probably the opposite <laughs> in ah. trying to get him to slow down and yeah. let his body recover naturally. Yes. Um, Steve, and I've, he had this inspiration while he was in hospital. So as soon as he was coming out, he wanted to get going. It's like, it's okay, you can let your body recover first. Yeah. Yes, you've got this ambition, fantastic, but also take the time, let recovery happen. What an angel you were, clearly, in his life. Well done. Look, thank you very much for coming to the end of the show, but it has been wonderful having you here, Tanya. And Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, well, we'll have you in again, clearly. And Ian, this is your baby. Well done for all the research you've done. Uh, well done for, for finding... Tur- Turramurra Rotary Club, Lucy, if I can just... Uh 
correct that, uh, that people are championing this. I'm just a humble member of the team. Well, as we all are, but you have presented it. And, and don't underestimate the fact that you've stood up and actually come on air and put yourself forward as someone who can can represent Taramara. Very happy to do so. Very happy to do so. Thank you. Lovely to have you in here. Credit where credit's due. And as mentioned earlier, the Kosciuszko Walk, if people want to come and get involved, they can certainly, there'll be some, I'll make sure there's some appropriate links on project7in4.com. Great. To lead through to the Taramara Rotary Project 7 in 4 site. Okay, perfect. And That's the 3rd of March. 3rd of March, yes. So not far off now. Lovely. Well, thank you both very much. Much appreciated. So now, uh, next week's show. Next week's show is an interview with a gentleman called Elkin Spiller. He is a producer and director of a film called Le Chem to Life. It is the most uh, stunning story of a son who has devoted his later life to looking after his elderly mother who survived the Holocaust. She was a child at the time. Um, He sees his job as being to offer his mother a reflection of love and humour and he certainly does that. He wants her to to feel that there are that that what happened to her wasn't her defining moment. And it it really it's really sat with me. I did this interview about uh six weeks ago and um I hope you enjoy it as much as as I did, and uh, get as much out of it as I did. It's a profound story about the intergenerational trauma of war because her parents were only able to parent her in a way that actually had to shut off a lot of their feelings because of the trauma that they'd experienced. They just didn't allow themselves to go there. We've spoken about it on some of the PTSD programs I've done before, but, well, you will just have to listen in to meet Shame and... uh, or Chaim, as his, as his name is pronounced, and uh, see if you have the same response as me. Feel free to listen live or to the podcast when you have a moment to sit, reflect, and enjoy. So to close, what I say each week resonates once again today. Remember that what has or is happening to you in your life, you are and always will be you and you are amazing. The key is to reconnect to that space and learn to build a relationship with your body so you can recognize when your body is trying to tell you something is not quite right and then seek the support from the appropriate support service, be that mental or physical health, to build tools to address what you do not yet feel equipped to manage. Look for support in the community. It is there. And remember, don't wait for life to come to you. Take yourself to life and be the change you want to see. The podcast for today's show will be available through the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website on SoundCloud, Stitcher and iTunes is coming. If you want to get updates, then remember to like the at Stay in the Loop with Lucy Facebook page. And all of those links will be available through the Triple H homepage. Until next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you, connect with the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be loved, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. Bye.